Acts chapter 2. We get to the roots of our heritage. The roots of the church. You know, some people are very interested to find out where they came from. They want to find out their great-great-great-grandfather and grandmother and the family tree, where their name came from, how their ancestors migrated and immigrated from one place to another place, and draw out the whole family tree and be able to have their roots somewhere to find out where they've come from. And it's very interesting to do that. Well, as the family of God, we have roots as well. And our roots go way back a couple thousand years ago to the early church, which was then located in Jerusalem. It was a Jewish church. It was a messianic assembly, if you will. There were no Gentiles like us in the church. There were just Jews who got together very simply and worshipped God. And as I've said before, it's a blast to read our heritage and see how fresh and uncomplicated the early church was. And I think that if anything is a model for us, it's the freshness and the childlike worship of the early church. If anything is a model for 20th century church people, it's just the freshness of coming before the Lord as a child of God. You know, I think, well, I don't think, I know, Jesus hit it right on the head when He looked at little children and He said, unless you become like a little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice how trusting little children are of their parents, at least up to a point, up to a certain age anyway. Dad is the hero of the universe. Nathan comes to me now and says, Dad, you are the boss of our house. Now, there'll come a day when he'll challenge that. But right now, there's just a warm, uncomplicated, unpretentious trust and love that he has for his parents. And when it comes to Jesus and worshiping God, kids just know how to do it right. They don't know the fancy terms. They don't know how the ins and outs go. They just love Jesus. The early church was like that. They just fell in love with Jesus and they had that in common and they got together and that was the early church. And what's beautiful is that behind all of this, the Lord was orchestrating it. Because Jesus made a prediction that He is now fulfilling in Acts chapter 2. When Peter said, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, right on, Peter. That's my paraphrase. Really, He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And He said, You are a small little stone, but upon this massive rock of what you just said, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. And that's the promise that we see fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, the birth of the early church at Pentecost. Jesus said, I will build my church. Do you know what a wonderful promise that is to me as a pastor? That Jesus told me that I don't have to worry about building His church and it's not my job to build His church. It's His job. It takes a load off me. And it's wonderful because... I have seen many people trying to build the Lord's church, almost saying, Lord, um, move over. I've got it down. I've got the techniques. I went to school for this. But it's wonderful to know that it's not my church. It's His church. And He builds. And I don't have to get involved in 
programs. And I don't have to get involved in gimmicks to bring the people in. Because it says at the end of this chapter, and the Lord added daily those who were being saved. It's the Lord's job to add. And God brings people in who are being saved. And also, it's God's job to subtract. We also see that in the book of Acts. As He builds His church, He also subtracts from it. And to be very honest with you, I kind of get excited at that too. Alan Redpath used to say, a great Bible expositor, that we shouldn't just thank God for the additions, but he said, as a pastor, I often thank God for those blessed subtractions. Because sometimes the ones he subtracts, it's very healthy for the church as he separates the chaff from the wheat. But all in all, we see Jesus Christ building his church. Now, in Acts chapter 2, there's a big historical transition. A new age has arrived. Not the new age of mysticism today. A new era of the Holy Spirit. Things are going to be different for God's people from Acts chapter 2 through the rest of history. It is the age of the Holy Spirit. No longer will the Holy Spirit come upon certain individuals, kings and prophets and spokesmen like He did in the Old Testament, but He will indwell and live inside every believer of Jesus Christ and He will empower them for service. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And you know, after this chapter, And I hope you pick up on this. You see a drastic change in the followers of Jesus. No longer are they fearful anymore. No longer are they closet Christians any longer who want to tuck their Bible under their coat so nobody will know they're Christians. There is an absence of silence. There is a boldness as they infiltrate Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and they go to different countries. In fact, in the book of Acts, there's the testimony that they're turning the world upside down. Oh, would to God that people would say that of us today. Oh, here comes those Christians. They're turning the world upside down for Jesus. Actually, we should rewrite that and say we're turning the world right side up because it's pretty mixed up as it is. And then we see Peter. We see him in this chapter and we'll probably get to him next week. Where Peter is no longer a little tiny stone who has lots of flaws and who's so scared to preach the gospel. We remember him in Caiaphas' courtyard when the people said, you're a Galilean and you follow Jesus. And he denied him three times. We don't see that kind of a Peter. We see Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, boldly proclaiming the gospel. And as you read it, you wonder, is this the same guy? We see a real change all the way through. And tonight, we're going to speak a little bit about the power of God on the day of Pentecost. Now, let me confess something to you. When I was a very young Christian, I mean, a week old in the Lord, I just barely knew that Jesus was real and He died for my sins and I know Him. And I was in love with Him. I went to church and during one service, during the worship time, I was observing people around me, much like some of you do. And as I was, instead of worshiping, observing, watching, not really being involved, I was noticing that some people had their eyes closed 
and their hands raised up in the air. And to be real honest with you, I thought, these guys are nuts. I mean, what is this, antennas or something? Now, keep in mind, I was a baby Christian. I didn't know what was going on. I'd never seen that before. I was never exposed to somebody genuinely surrendering with their body over to the Lord. I didn't know the motivation of their heart, but I just thought, oh, I'm not into this kind of stuff. And then when I would attend certain meetings where there would be the manifestations of the gift of the Holy Spirit, I thought, oh, these guys really have flipped. They're trying to draw attention to themselves. Now, some people might be doing that, but there were an awful lot of people who were really drawing attention to the Lord. When I first saw that, I got a little scared. I thought, you know what? I don't know about this Christian stuff because I don't want to end up like that. That just seems kind of weird. I just can't picture myself walking around like this all the time. Now, I'm just exposing my true feelings at that time. Stripping away all of the Christianese. That's how I felt. And I was scared of the Holy Spirit. But folks, I want to tell you something. You never, and I found this out, ever have to be scared of the Holy Spirit or of what the Holy Spirit would have for you. Because I have found out that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman and He leads you in different stages of maturity in your Christian walk. I was immature then. I am maturer or more mature now. At least I hope I am. And I have a long ways to go. And no doubt I will learn more of the Lord and how to please Him and worship Him as I go. But you never have to be scared of the Holy Spirit. He's a gentleman. But Jesus said the Holy Spirit would guide you and lead you into all truth. He won't force you into all truth. He won't say, stick him up. He'll lead you. Gently. And you never have to be scared, nor do you have to be scared of becoming too close to the Lord. And see, that was my fear. I thought, you know, I don't want to get too close to the Lord because, you know, you have... All of you have seen certain people who are Christians that you think, oh, I don't want to, if that's what getting close to the Lord is going to do to me, I don't want anything to do with it. And let's just be honest, there are some Christians who are peculiar, who are weird. But that's okay, just don't blame it all on the Lord. And you know what? If you find a Christian who's weird, chances are they were weird before they were Christians. And it's not because of the Lord. And you never have to be scared of getting too close to the Lord or too involved with the Lord or too involved with the Holy Spirit. Your only fear has to be not being close enough to Him. Not being involved too much with Him. Or enough. My fear is that I'm not close enough to the Lord. Not, oh, I'm a little too close here. And the Holy Spirit is gentle. And we see in the book of Acts how He leads them, even though they made a lot of mistakes. Now, it says in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house, probably the temple a place in or near the Temple Mount, thousands of people were gathered where they were sitting. 
And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own dialect or language, dialectus. And when and they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in our language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they're full of new wine. These kooks are drunk. <laughs> and Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice. Now, here's the change in Peter. All of a sudden, he's this bold dynamo for the Lord. And he said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, one of the sh sharpest controversies that has ever brewed among Christians is this whole controversy of tongues. It's divided more churches, more friendships. In fact, it was George Malone who wrote a book about this, and he called tongues the greatest friendship and oneness buster of the century. It just splits people up. I don't seek to mend the quarrels because if it's been going on for that long of a time, I'm sure a study on it or the series that I did on the gifts of the Holy Spirit isn't going to clear all of the smoke away for some people. It's controversial. It's a very tough subject. And there seems to be two ends of it. On one side you have the charisphobics. People who are just scared to death of anything that smacks of the Holy Spirit, revival, afterglow, dynamic worship. They just are scared of it. They don't want to touch it. 
Some even go so far as to say any of this tongue speaking is satanic. And so anytime somebody speaks in tongue, you know, it's, you know, get away! Then you have the other end of the spectrum, the charismaniacs, who are not satisfied until every Christian speaks in tongues. And they believe, some of them believe, you're not even saved until you speak in tongues, because if you were saved, you'd certainly be baptized with the Spirit, and if you were baptized with the Spirit, you'd certainly speak in tongues. And their whole issue is tongues, tongues, tongues. And frankly, it drives me nuts. I was with a friend one time in California, and on the back of his Volkswagen bus that was beat up and ready to die, he had a Jesus bumper sticker. You know, in those days you identify Christians by their bumper stickers. For you know the Scripture, all men shall know that you are my disciples by the bumper stickers that they have. At least that's what we thought. And we pulled into a gas station. There was a guy getting gas who had a Jesus bumper sticker in his car. My friend went out and shook his hand and said, Hey, I'm a Christian too. And we wanted a fellowship with the Lord, about the Lord. The guy turned to him and he said, Do you speak in tongues? You wonder, now are we on the same page together here? Isn't the central issue Jesus and loving one another? And so you have those two extremes and each camp thinks the other camp is heretical and carnal. And you're more spiritual, one camp says, if you speak in tongues, and the other camp says, you're more spiritual if you don't. And so we have these two groups that instead of fighting our real enemy, the devil, we're fighting one another and slicing the church up. And the church becomes very weak and anemic because of it. It's created a lot of confusion, especially among people who are seeking to find out what Christianity is all about. The Holy Spirit's tugging at their heart, and they see all this confusion about it. And sometimes it just ruins the whole issue. Uh, the director of uh, Joy Junction, Jeremy Reynolds, was visiting a church, he said one time, with his sons. And he was at a church, and they were very animated in their worship. And the entire congregation was speaking in something. Tongues, I suppose. And it frightened the child. And he uh, turned to Jeremy and he said, Dad, what are they doing? He said, Son, they're just praying. And kid grabbed a hold of Jeremy and said, Dad, do they do this before they eat too? <laughs> just scared him to death. Now Jesus said, these signs shall follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. Those are one of the signs Jesus said would follow believers in Him. Doesn't mean that everyone's going to cast out demons. Doesn't mean that everyone's going to speak in tongues because it says you'll pick up serpents. In the course of spreading the gospel, you'll come against danger. And even if you pick up a sermon, a serpent, pick up a sermon, and it bites you, and some of those do, don't they? If you pick up a snake and it bites you, it won't harm you. Jesus promised that those things would follow us yet. Paul comes to the balance in Corinthians 
And he tells us a very important truth. Now listen up, you who are just really keyed in on the fact that if you're really dynamic and you really worship God and you're really spiritual, you'll speak in tongues. Listen to this. Paul said, in essence, that the pathway of love is much greater than the pathway of power. The pathway of love is much greater than the pathway of power. For he said, though I speak with the tongue of men or of angels, and I have not love, I am like a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making a bunch of noise. And what Paul was referring to was the worship of many of the pagans in those days at the temple in Corinth and in Ephesus. The pagans would get together and go into an ecstatic kind of a trance and just babble. That was very characteristic of pagan worship. And Paul is saying, if you have the gift of tongues, but you don't have love, your worship is no better than a pagan. That's what his whole point was. So the pathway of love is always superseding the pathway of power. So keep that in balance. Signs and wonders will follow believers. Yet believers are not to follow signs and wonders. And some do, don't they? They want to go to the biggest fire that's burning in town. The newest renewal. The newest this and that that's burning through town. And they're always following the meetings and the signs and the wonders. Instead of preaching the gospel and watching God fulfill His Word by having those signs and wonders happen in their own lives, following them. And remember that the pathway of love is always greater than the pathway of power. And you know what? Tongues are real and I believe still exist in the church today. I still believe it's a spiritual gift. I speak in them. Although you'll probably never hear me unless you come to a afterglow where God just lays it on my heart and there is an interpretation. Because I believe it's more for private devotion than for public worship. Unless it's accompanied by an interpretation. But tongues, folks, are not enough to be the evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now perhaps some of you have been taught that. That speaking in tongues is the evidence of a person being baptized with the Holy Spirit. I agree and I disagree. It is an evidence. It's one of them. But there are many more, and the greatest one is the fruit of the Spirit called love. Because I have met people who don't speak in tongues, and yet they demonstrate such warmth and such love, and I know that they're controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. And I've met other people who speak in tongues and have many miraculous gifts who don't show love, And I think there's greater evidence in the person who doesn't speak in tongues but shows love than the person who does and doesn't show love. Paul said that. The pathway of love more than the pathway of power. In verse 1, we see the significance of Pentecost. Luke, in writing this, says, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, it was during the day, they were all with one accord in one place. Let me tell you a little bit about Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the three major feasts of the Jews during every year. Pentecost is a Greek word which means 50th. So if you are having a 50 wedding anniversary, you've been married 50 years, it's a long time, you are having a Pentecost, a 50th celebration. That's what the word means, a 50th. Pentecost came 50 days 
after another feast called the Feast of First Fruits, which happened during Passover season. Now, it, there is a significance to this, so I want you to listen carefully. During Passover season, the first day following, or the first day after the Sabbath that followed Passover was the Feast of First Fruits. They would take the barley sheaf, go into the corner of the fields during the beginning of the harvest, take a barley sheaf, and they'd wave it up in the air in the temple as a thanksgiving that this is the first fruits of our harvest. It was the first day of the week. It was on Sunday because it was following the Sabbath, which is the seventh day is Saturday. It was done on Sunday, the first day of the week. The first fruits, they'd raise up the sheaf to heaven. Fifty days after that event came Pentecost. And it was also called Hag Shavuot in Hebrew or the Feast of Weeks because you'd wait seven weeks and have another celebration. The celebration is Pentecost. Why do you celebrate? Because it's the end of the harvest. It's the end of the barley harvest. And what the Jews would do is, and it was really neat, God gave such beautiful laws for their worship. And one of the laws was you shall have a blast, basically. In Deuteronomy, it says when you come together on Pentecost, you are to have joy in your hearts and celebration. It's not to be a somber event. I want you to have a blast because you're celebrating my goodness. I don't want you to come in and sing funeral marches. I want you to sing a holy song unto the Lord and have a holy convocation and celebration. The people would gather to the temple or to the tabernacle and they would bring, instead of sheaves of barley, two loaves of bread. Or they've now taken it and brought the grains together, made two loaves of bread, and they would wave the loaves before the Lord and people would come with singing and with joy. And it was like a, our Thanksgiving celebration. Hag Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. It is significant that the church was born on Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit came upon them and powered them, and boom, the church really began on Pentecost. It's significant because the feasts of Israel are really prophetic of the work of Jesus Christ. And you see them by their fulfillment. Jesus was crucified during Passover. Now, if you know anything about Passover, that's significant to you, isn't it? Because during Passover, a lamb was slain and its blood covered the children of Israel. John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus was crucified during Passover and he rose on the first day of the week or their feast of first fruits during that year. And the sheaf raised up in the air is symbolic of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Seven weeks after his resurrection was the Feast of Pentecost and the church was born. And it's the feast of the ingathering of the harvest, the two loaves of bread being waved before the Lord, symbolic of we're the family of God. And God takes Jews and Gentiles. He's going to bring them all together in one lump. And there's going to be no more barriers anymore. The coming together of the church. And you see the significance of Passover, First fruits and Pentecost all the way through. That's the reason, by the way, Christians worship on Sunday. Ever wonder, now, why do, if the Bible says you shall keep holy the Sabbath day, Saturday, why do Christians worship on Sunday? And you may have even been around certain people who accuse you of worshiping on the wrong day. 
The Seventh-day Adventists, God bless them, but they're just very wrong and animate in this certain um, portion. Some of them, at least they used to teach it, say that some of them go, go to the extreme and say if you worship on Sunday, you've taken the mark of the beast because God wants you to worship on Saturday. And Christians have no right to worship on Sunday. Well, the reasons Christians worship on Sunday is because Jesus rose from the dead the first day of the week. The church was born on the first day of the week. And ever since then, and you see it in Corinthians and other books of the New Testament, the church was told to gather together on the first day of the week, bring in tithes and offerings, and to worship the Lord. So, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord, and they were in one place. Now, that's the significance of Pentecost. Let's look at the signs of Pentecost. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. Get that. Not actually tongues of fire, but it looked as of fire. And one sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I want you to notice a couple things, the timing of this and the origin of this. The timing was Pentecost. We already discovered that. But it was after Jesus told them to wait. And they probably waited between seven and ten days together. In an upper room, in the temple, where they were waiting. Jesus said, wait. Okay, let's wait. He said something would happen. Let's see it. And the origin was from God. They didn't have to work this up. They didn't have to push and pump and work themselves into a worshipful trance or mood. It says they were sitting. They weren't kneeling. They weren't standing, which were the typical forms of prayer. Now, I bet you they started out that way because it says in chapter 1 they were praying in one accord. Here it says they were together and they were sitting. They're probably just hanging around going, what's for lunch? We're waiting. It's been seven to ten days now. Suddenly, God took the initiative and they heard an audible sign and a visible sign. A rushing mighty wind and tongues of fire on each person. They didn't have to work it up. It happened suddenly and God took the initiative. I say that because we're funny when it comes to traditions. We are quick to point the finger at certain people's who have come up with traditions, and yet we forget sometimes about traditions we have. For instance, many Pentecostal groups are quick to point the finger at liturgical churches who have high, structured kind of worship, thinking, it's all tradition. And yet Pentecostals have formed their own tradition in things what they call tarrying meetings. We're going to wait on the Holy Spirit. We're going to press through. We're going to... Go for hours and hours and we're going to tarry until something happens. They weren't doing this. They were just hanging out. They were sitting. And the Holy Spirit, God, took the initiative and this whole event happened here. The Feast of Weeks or the beginning of the church, the Holy Spirit came on them in, uh, in power. There are two signs here that never were repeated in church history again. Remember that. Pentecost was a once-for-all event. 
Although, the result of Pentecost continues to happen. We don't read of Pentecost as we read it here ever happening again. The two signs, fire and wind, were something special at this point to inaugurate the early church. Yet, what happened in verse 4 is something we see repeated over and over again. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that did not cease in Acts chapter 2. Read the rest of the book of Acts, and you hear that phrase recurrent throughout. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 6 and 7, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 19. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Pentecost was a historical once-for-all event. It happened, it's over, and Pentecost, folks, will never happen again. Just like the Incarnation was a historical once-for-all fact, just like the crucifixion of Jesus Christ happened once and for all and Jesus isn't going to be crucified anymore, just like the resurrection is a once-for-all historical fact, Jesus isn't going to rise from the dead anymore. He's already alive. The ascension into heaven, that's done. And so it is with Pentecost. It doesn't need to happen anymore, but the results of that will always continue being filled with the Holy Spirit because Pentecost was a fulfillment of a promise Jesus made to the disciples in the upper room when He promised that the Spirit would come upon them and give them power to preach the gospel. And it happens here as a fulfillment of that. Look in verse 39 of this chapter, or verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit were promised not just to them, but to the people that they would preach the gospel to and people who are afar off, like us, who are called of the Lord. It's a promise that goes on and on and on. Now, why was there wind that blew through the house or the temple? It not only got the attention of the disciples, it got the attention of the people who went to church that day in the temple. Wind is a manifestation of power. Wind is one of the most irresistible forces of nature. If you've ever lived in a tropical part of the world or visited one and watched the monsoons and the hurricanes and the typhoons, you know that wind is nothing to be messed with. During those kinds of storms, you don't go fly a kite. This week in California, we have or they have what they call Santa Ana winds blow every year. This week they were so strong that huge trucks and some trailer buildings were just blown right over just because of the wind, a manifestation of power. Now, it's interesting that the word Holy Spirit could be translated Holy Wind. For in Hebrew, Spirit is Ruach. And in Greek, it is Pneuma. Both which are translated wind or breath. Spirit, wind, or breath. Synonyms for the same thing. The Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, the wind blows wherever it wants to. So it is with those who are born of the Holy Spirit. The power coming upon them at Pentecost. And then the other symbol was fire. And fire, I believe, is symbolic of the purification and cleansing spiritually. Remember John the Baptist when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? He said, I baptize you with water, but there comes one after me mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
And so here we see the fulfillment of that right here. Now look in verse 4 one more time. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Please notice that. It was the Spirit who gave them utterance. Or a better translation would be, the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak in tongues. Or another translation says, the Holy Spirit prompted them to speak in tongues. That is very important. Because some people have gotten the idea that to speak in tongues, it's like God speaks through you. And He doesn't. God does not speak through you when you speak in tongues. But some people have gotten the idea, again, through watching certain people, seeing it modeled, not really looking at the scriptural evidence, think that to speak in tongues, it's like you just stand there, open your mouth, and this force is going to come upon you, and God's going to speak through you. And you're going to say stuff sometimes out of your control. That is really not the case at all. And again, it's because they have heard people model it. They've been in meetings where somebody all of a sudden speaks words they can't understand and they're louder than their normal tone of voice and a higher pitch of tone than their normal voice. And you think, oh, that's how it works. Or they've heard the testimony of some people who have said, you know, when I speak in tongues, I just can't help it. It just comes on me. God takes a hold of me and I can't help it. I heard of someone who actually told me this. This lady went to a gas station. Wanted to fill up her car. And all of a sudden, she said, I couldn't help it. I just started speaking in tongues to the gas station attendant. And I think the gas station attendant must have ran or something. But she said, I couldn't help it. It just came upon me. I have found that when I speak in an unknown tongue, using the gift of tongues, that I have control over it. Even as prophecy where it says the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. And Paul spoke about the exercise of the will in this gift. He said in 1 Corinthians 14, What then? I will speak with the spirit. I will Sing with understanding or speak with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit and sing with understanding. Four times he said, I will. It's an exercise of will. A gift of God, yes. But, folks, we have the volume control at our control and the tone control. It's ours. Some people may exercise it very mildly. Some people may exercise it very loudly. And that's okay. But, just so you understand that it's the control of the person, not the control of the Holy Spirit when it comes to the volume and the loudness. So if you're thinking, oh, I'm afraid of speaking in tongues or being open to God for that one because I don't want to go to gas stations and banks and just start speaking real loud or be in a meeting where I'm going to speak real loud, you'll find that that's really not the case. You have the volume control and you have the tone control. Why is it then that some people speak very loudly? Because... It's a reaction to what they are experiencing when it comes to the Holy Spirit moving. And some people, by nature, get very excited. And some people shriek when they get excited. And get very loud when they get excited. 
Don't blame it on the Holy Spirit. It's that person reacting to what he's feeling and seeing and experiencing. And oftentimes, well, it'll sound like that. Now it says in the very next verse, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Why were they there? The Feast of Pentecost. It's kind of interesting that this happened during that time. It was a requirement for every Jewish male within a certain proximity to attend, it was mandatory, to attend three feasts a year. Sort of like you have to attend church on these days or you're cut off. You had to attend church or the temple. The Feast of Passover, number one. The Feast of Pentecost, number two. And the Feast of Booths, number three, in the fall of the year. So all these people are crowded in the streets of Jerusalem for the feast. And when this sound occurred, that rushing mighty wind sound, the multitude came together. Now, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you have seen the remains of the temple. It's a big place. It's acres and acres and acres of real estate. All surrounding this temple with a wall enclosing it. Thousands of people can be housed in this. Imagine all of the people on the temple mount hearing this sound thinking, What is that? Coming together around these Christians, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own dialect, a human language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? Now that's important, a little side note, because Galileans were the ancient Hicks in the New Testament. If you were Galilean, you could tell it because you had a kind of a country accent. And to the Jerusalemites, you were a little bit impure. You know, it's like, it's like, and I'm not just picking on Texans here, but if you were a Texan and you went to England, the English people who speak Cambridge English, the Queen's English, they, oh my goodness, you're, you're butchering the Queen's language. They get all upset sometimes. Well, the Galileans were like the country southern accent. And so, not only are these guys speaking our language, but they're Galileans. You know, that was a, a miracle in itself. And how is it that we hear each in our language in which we were born? It names all of these people. Speaking, in verse 11 it says, We hear them speaking in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Great miraculous thing occurred. The miraculous thing is that the disciples were speaking in languages that they didn't understand themselves because they were not native-born Parthians, Medes, Elamites from Mesopotamia. They were Jerusalemites. And they were speaking the dialects of these different countries. And while they were speaking them, they didn't know the dialects, but the other people could hear them. Keep something in mind. What they are speaking was a known human language. Now, this is very different from what we read in Corinthians. Because in Corinthians, it seems like Paul is not speaking about known human languages that have form and syntax and understandability. But glossolalia is the word there. The word here is dialectus, which means dialects from different countries or districts. The word in Corinthians is glossolalia, which means an utterance in tongues. And in Corinthians, they are not intelligible to either the speaker nor the hearer. 
unless there's the gift of interpretation that accompanies it. So it seems very clear that this in Pentecost was a unique experience, far different from what we read later on in the book of Acts, where the early church, the Holy Spirit could come upon them and give them the gift of tongues. This was unique. It was a gift. It was modified, it seems, later on for a specific purpose. This was to get the attention of the multitudes. It was not to preach the gospel to them because it says in verse 11, we hear them magnifying God, literally, in our own languages. They're worshiping God. And in verse 14, Peter preaches the gospel. But it's not in tongues. It's in the language everybody understands, the common Greek or the Aramaic. But here they're speaking in understandable languages. And so, keep something in mind. Two aspects of speaking in tongues. This Pentecostal, or this time at Pentecost, when they spoke in known human languages that had form and syntax, that other people said, hey, that guy speaks my language, and he shouldn't be doing that because he's not from my part of the world. Then there's the Corinthian tongues, the glossolalia. Seem to be ecstatic utterances where there needs to be the gift of interpretation or no one will be able to understand you. Now I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll close here tonight. There's a lot more to share on this, and we'll do it next time we meet. But turn to chapter 14. I want you to notice a verse. It says in verse 2, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him, however, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. Nobody understands him. See how different that is from the book of Acts? They understood what they were saying, and there's no indication that somebody's interpreting this. They just said, they're speaking our language, our dialectus. Here the word is glossolalia, in a static utterance that no one can understand unless the person has a supernatural gift, the gift of interpretation. So the gift that we read about in 1 Corinthians is a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit. It is not a, lang- uh, a natural linguistic proficiency. It's not, boy, this guy has a real gift of being able to speak different languages. That's not it at all. It's not a knack or a talent. It's a gift of being able to speak, and interpretation is a supernatural gift, and these two are distinguished. Now, next time we meet, we're going to ask these questions, and we'll finish out this whole section. Is the gift of tongues for today... If it is, how is it to be used? Something we've discussed in our series on the Holy Spirit. What is the purpose of the gift of tongues? And how can our own personal prayer life be enhanced by it? That's something I wanted to discuss tonight, but time has gotten away from us, so let's close our Bibles and pray. Heavenly Father, you're the author of life. You're the source of all that is good. We magnify, Lord, your name. And you magnify your word above your name. We're thankful, Father, that we have a family tree that we can consult. We can look and see our heritage, our roots. We can see how the early church worshipped. We can see the power that was available there. 
We can see how uniquely you moved upon the early church. And they were just so fresh and so simple like little children. They didn't force anything. They didn't try to work up anything. They just were sitting. They were waiting. They were very available, however, very available. And in that availability, you came and you interrupted their world and you set Jerusalem on fire so that people even said they were turning it upside down. Lord, as we look back to our family tree and see our forefathers, we want to be able to capture some of that zeal that they had. We don't want to work it up and have it of our own, of our own flesh, of our own doing. We really want you to come and baptize us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us power. And give us love, Lord. The world might know that Jesus was sent by you. Father, I pray that none of us would ever be scared of something you have for them. We want to come behind in no spiritual gift. And so, Father, convince us that the safest person for us to trust is you. And we seek every gift you'd have for us, Lord. We want to know how our gift operates. We want to know what it means to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and see our own world changed. We want to experience that, Lord. As Christians, we don't want to settle for the mediocre, for the mundane. We want to be faithful in what you've called us to do and we want to experience your calling for our lives with great power and results. So send revival to our souls. And may your Holy Spirit fill us and send us. In Jesus' name, amen.